0: Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and I will read the first 19 verses. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 19. We remember that this is the inspired and inerrant word of God. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust, all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life both thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you and you shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you shall return may God's blessing be on this reading from his holy word let's pray together Oh, Lord, our God, these words are difficult. We know that many, many bad things came as a result of the historical events that are recorded here. And yet we pray that you would give us encouragement out of these words, that you will help us, that you will draw near to us, and that you'll glorify yourself in your Son because of what we see. So bless these moments and help us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. The events recorded in Genesis 3 describe to us the, most, the second most tragic event in all human history. The first, from a human perspective, is the execution of the only truly holy man who ever lived, our Lord Jesus Christ. But here, we read this historical account. We are reminded that Adam was directly created by God. He was righteous, he was holy, and he was happy. As we've heard, he lived in a perfect environment, was given every necessary and possible resource, and he enjoyed intimate communion with God. And yet he chose to disobey his king He preferred his own will, he served his own pleasure, he chose his own way by disobeying the only commandment he had received. He fell, he died, and he brought death to all his descendants. And this is why I call the act that is recorded here a great tragedy, because every other evil that we know in this world may be traced to Adam's disobedience in this one matter. By his sin, he introduced into human history sorrow, trouble, suffering, pain, sin, and death. And every time that you encounter any of those in your life, that is a fruit, a bad fruit, of Adam's action. The penalty of the covenant of works came upon Adam and all his progeny. The world was cursed. And we suffer greatly as a result. But that really is only the beginning of the story. The God who created all things is a merciful, kind, gracious God. Though he issued the sentence of death, even in his words of judgment, we find hope through a new promise. I want you to look again with me at verses 14 through 19 of this text. Because here we have God speaking to the serpent, then speaking to Eve, and then speaking to Adam. Let me read them again. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first one addressed is the serpent, and the Lord pronounces a terrible curse upon him. He was the deceiver, he was the one who misled Eve so that she tempted her husband to sin. And the sentence for the serpent is that he must crawl on the ground as a symbol of his evil. He is sent to the lowest place for punishment. But there's something else here in these words. There's also a promise. In fact, for the second time in the first three chapters of this book, we find words with a double sense. In Genesis 2, 15 through 17 there is a promise expressed in the words of penalty. We just heard about that in our last session. There in Genesis 2, we find that the Lord implies a blessing as the opposite of a penalty. Adam would be able to eat of the tree of life if he had kept uh, the commandment, and God would have blessed him. If Adam obeys God, if he works, if he does what God commands, he will live. And this is not just continued physical life, but everything about the penalty would be reversed. Adam would be given life, a holy and happy continuance in a state of true righteousness, of walking with God and enjoying fellowship with him. Adam would retain the divine image in perfection and forever with his wife and all his descendants live enjoying unending blessings in the presence of God. And so a promise, Was included in a curse. Now here in Genesis chapter 3, the same kind of double sense is present. Here we see blessing in the words of a curse. And strangely, and perhaps quite unexpectedly, they are not addressed to Adam, nor are they addressed to Eve. Though the blessing is for them and for their descendants, They only receive it by listening to the words that God speaks to the serpent. I I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall. I realize that that's not possible. But to have watched Adam and Eve as they stood and listened as the Lord spoke to the serpent, how much did they realize that the curse that was being pronounced upon him was actually a blessing that would be granted to them and to their descendants? Well, I want to consider this Uh, subject. By the way, proto-evangelion means the first announcement of the gospel. That's what it means. It's a Latin term. Uh, It's one of those old words that people like to use, but that's all it means, the first announcement of the gospel. Let's consider this under three headings. Number one, what is the blessing promised? Number two, what purpose does this serve in God's covenant plan? And then thirdly, how is this promise fulfilled? So that's where we're going. What is the blessing promised? What purpose does this serve in God's covenant plan? And how is the promise fulfilled? So first, what is the blessing promised? Well, look again closely at verse 15, because there are some interesting words that we find there. I will put enmity between you and the woman. You see that word enmity? Is that a word of blessing? You know, one of, the, one of the wonderful things about being at conferences like this is the opportunity to see friends that perhaps you don't see on a regular basis, but you get to shake their hands and talk to them and ask them how they're doing and hear about what God is doing in their midst and in their, in their lives and in their, their ministries and all the rest. It's wonderful. And I've seen many of you and had that privilege that I've delighted in being able to talk to you. But imagine that this morning when I shook your hand and I greeted you, I said something like this. Boy, it's nice to see you, good morning. And by the way, I'm full of enmity towards you. (laughs) How would you feel if I said those words? Enmity is not a friendly word, is it? It's a word of hatred, it's a word of destruction. I will put enmity between you and uh, between uh, you and the woman and the seed. We must answer that enmity is not a word of blessing except here because it is. It teaches us that the woman is to be separated from the serpent. She and her seed will battle against the serpent. But there's another interesting word that we need to notice in verse 15. It's the word bruise. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head. The Hebrew word could also be translated legitimately as crush. Now, what if when we greeted each other this morning, not only did I say, I have enmity against you, but by the way, I'd like to crush you. And then somehow I did that, maybe with my big foot stepping on your toes and pushing down upon it. What would that do? It would not be a word, an act of blessing, would it? And yet here it is. You see, we must answer, yes, this is a word of blessing. And we ask, how is that the case? Well, it is that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and kill him. The deceiving enemy will die. Although her seed will also be bruised because he'll receive a wound on his heeled, not a place on the body where a life-threatening damage is normally done, the wound to the heel will be temporary and cannot end the work that is done by this person. In other words, as the Lord addressed the serpent, he tells the serpent that there is someone to come, someone in the future, who will be his greatest enemy, who will have enmity towards him, who will bruise or crush his head, and his work will be done. He will be so great, he'll be great enough to do battle with the serpent and put an end to him, bring death upon him by crushing his head. Now, that's a promise, a blessing, couched to us in forms of a curse. In the same way that the penalty in Genesis 2:17 contained a promise, now we have a curse that is a blessing. That's what God intends. That's the first announcement of the gospel, that someone is to come. Now we have a lot more to say. Follow along with me. My second point, what purpose does this serve in God's covenant plan? Well, we must ask this question. What purpose does this serve in God's covenant plan? Or, how does this affect the rest of the history recorded in the Bible? These are really important questions. But the answer is very simple. After the terrible disobedience of Adam and his fall into sin, the gracious God makes the first announcement of redemption through Jesus Christ. As I've said, this is what is referred to in this Latin word, proto-evangelium, which simply means the initial publication of the good news of the coming of Christ and the work he will accomplish. Up to this point, there's been no mention of God's redeeming purpose given to Adam or to Eve. But at this point, in words that are spoken to the serpent, there is this announcement. The fall was terrible, but the grace of God is far greater, so that here the Lord begins to reveal what we call the covenant of grace. And from this point onward, the Bible is a record of God's gracious dealings with sinful humanity. We see this especially in all the promises and the types and the shadows and the sacrifices and the laws and the priesthood and the prophecies and the kingship. We see that everything points to the Lord Jesus Christ. All these things anticipate the coming of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. In fact, we can say that the rest of Scripture is an unfolding of this promise hidden in a curse. Isn't that what Jesus taught his disciples on the evening of his resurrection? Do you remember these words recorded for us by Luke in Luke chapter 24 when he was speaking to two disciples on the road to Emmaus? This is what he said. Luke tells us, he said to them, remember they were troubled they didn't know how to interpret the events that had taken place that their their master had been killed by the Romans and now the rumor was spreading that he rose from the dead and they didn't know what to think and Jesus says to them "O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory that's the question that he asks And then Luke gives us a comment, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know what that is? That's a lesson in biblical theology. We learned what that is yesterday. That's what this is. The same night, later on, he meets with his disciples in a closed room in Jerusalem, and Luke records this for us. He said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Here, Jesus, looking back on all of the books of the Old Testament, the, the law, the books of Moses, the prophets, that includes all the historical books, the major and the minor prophets, that's how the, the Israelites viewed them, and the Psalms, that's all of the wisdom literature, all of it together, Jesus says, it's about me. I'm the theme, I'm the center. You read it and you see me. If if, Brothers and sisters, if we fail to look at the Old Testament as a Christian book that discloses to us the Lord Jesus, we, we don't understand what he taught his disciples twice on the day of his resurrection. The Old Testament is a Christian book and the main theme of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ himself, our Lord and our Savior. We have to see him here. You see, in progressive stages, which the Baptist Confession in chapter 7, paragraph 3, calls farther steps. It's one of my favorite phrases in the whole confession. In progressive stages, or farther steps, slowly more light is given. So that the picture becomes clearer, we learn more and more until in the fullness of time, Paul says in Galatians 4.4, 4, in the fullness of time, the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the one of whom deity must be asserted the one of whom everything that may be said about god must be said about him assumed human nature human flesh he became one with us he took to us to himself everything that is true about us apart from sin and sin is not an inherent part of humanity sin comes after the fall everything about god everything about man comes to him He takes our our nature so that he might live a life of perfect obedience to God's law, fulfilling the broken covenant of works for us, and by his death, paid the penalty for our sin, crushing the head of the serpent. Glory be to God. That's what the Bible is about. And this is the covenant of grace, God's eternal purpose for the redemption of humans through Jesus Christ. The first revelation comes in the form of a curse, nevertheless bringing light and hope. I wonder if that dark spirit that had come upon Adam and Eve, when they hid themselves, when they fled from God, suddenly there was something that brought light to them when they began to understand what was happening in these words. Though death is the penalty for sin, though the wages of sin is death, yet the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, his Son. And the rest of the Bible tells us this story. It describes to us God's plan to defeat the serpent and to exalt the Son. My third point, how then is the promise fulfilled? Well, I want you to look at with me at two New Testament texts. We could, we could spend the rest of the day looking at the whole Bible. But let's just look at two texts in the New Testament That will help us to understand this. Turn first to John's first letter, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And I want to read verses 1 through 16. Now pay close attention to the language that we find here. 1 John 3, 1 through 16. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us That we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. I hope you're picking up on some of these references. Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, that is the Lord, is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another... Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, there are several comments that I want to make on this text. Look first at verse 8. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. First, notice the language of creation. John uses the phrase, from the beginning. We're intended to think back to the events of Genesis chapter 3. Notice also the presence of the devil, the serpent, the one who sinned from the beginning. Notice the mention of God's purpose. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. You know that that's covenantal language. That's what the Lord intends for us to see there. I want you, let me just step aside from this for a moment, and I want to say, beware the word concept fallacy. The word concept fallacy is the idea that if a word isn't present in a particular context, then the idea is not present. That, that's a fallacy. It's a mistake to make. The word diatheke, covenant, may not be here, but by using this language of God's purpose, that's what John is pointing us to, the covenant of grace. Now notice what the purpose of this is. It is the manifestation, the demonstration, the appearance of the Son of God. And notice the work of the Son of God when he's manifest. He destroys the work of the devil. You see, what John is describing to us here is all about the covenant of grace. God planned, God purposed, God covenanted to send his son, to manifest him, to reveal him, to show him in all of his glory. And his great work is to kill the devil and to bring life to God's children. But there's more in the context that I want you to notice. Look again with me at verses 1 and 2. This is the restoration of that which was lost at the beginning. And it's the language of new creation behold what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him be- beloved now we are children of God and has not yet been revealed what we shall be but we know that when he is revealed we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is we will enter into the new creation that comes to us through Jesus Christ look at again at verse 16 by this we know because he laid down his life for us. His heel is bruised. The serpent took a bite out of him. He laid down his life in order that we might have life. Look again at verses 10 and 11. What is the difference between two types of people? Some love God and some don't. Remember the words of Genesis 3, spoken to the serpent. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed in verses 10 and 11 it's the children of God and the children of the devil that's the language of seed you see there are two types of people in the world God's children and the devil's children and the difference is evident by their actions the children of the devil sin they act this way by nature because this is what they are his children we are they are sinners and yet the God's children are different They practice righteousness. They act this way because their nature has been changed. I'm not saying that we do so perfectly, but I'm saying rather in conversion and regeneration, God gives us a new nature so that we are able to choose that which is good. Look again at verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in him, this hope of salvation this hope of forgiveness this hope of eternal life everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure the children of god purify themselves because of what god has done for them we have a hope and that hope causes us to look forward here in the text we're called god's children we look forward to eternal life and so we flee unrighteousness to serve him This is not so that we will be saved. Rather, it's because we have been saved. It's not so that we will be justified. We're never justified by works. But it's because God has justified us, because he has granted us, imputed to us, the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And in thankfulness, then, we pursue after righteousness. To use John's language here, we purify ourselves. The children of the evil one don't do that. They continue to satisfy their own lusts. They pursue their sins, where the people of God are demonstrated by the fact that since God has saved them, since they've been justified, since they've been regenerated, now in order to show their gratitude, they pursue righteousness. They purify themselves. They make themselves pure. You see, what John tells us here is that the covenant of grace, this covenant that was revealed in Genesis 3.15 gives life. It's what provides to us all that we need in our lives. Now, there's another text I want you to look at with me in Romans chapter 16. Please turn back there. Romans chapter 16. Romans 16, 17 through 20. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all, therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Once again, here, there are important words and concepts. First, our Father in heaven is called the God of peace. This is, of course, in contrast to the enmity that is brought to us by the evil one. And how is it that he brings peace? Shalom, all that is well He does this by crushing Satan under our feet, under our heel, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is always with us. The opposite of enmity is peace. The crushing of Satan under the feet is a reference to the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. God saves us in and through his Son, the one who was manifest before us, the second person of the Trinity who took to himself our human nature. The seed of the woman is Jesus Christ and his people are united to him. When Paul speaks about him as the God of peace, he's using another covenantal word. The Lord calls his people to walk in peace. We can say three things about this text. Those who cause divisions are to be avoided. Whether these divisions are doctrinal, that is heresies, false doctrines, or whether they are personal offenses, unrepented, we must note and avoid such people. They don't serve the Lord, they serve themselves. They want what they can get from us. They speak well, but the goal is deception, like the serpent deceived Eve in the garden. Paul says, note and avoid such people. Verse 19 describes the peaceful way of walking. Be wise in what is good, or to put it differently, know the mind of the Lord that is revealed to us in scripture. Be simple about evil. Don't practice it. Flee from it. And these two things are about Christian experience. Don't cause divisions. Don't bring about offenses. Enjoy the simplicity of peacefulness and ignore evil. Amen. Paul says, everything relies on grace. That's in verse 20. The covenant of grace god's unfailing promise to bless his people first spoken in the garden progressively revealed throughout the old testament until it comes to reality in history through our lord jesus christ you know what paul is saying to us here you know what the scripture is saying look to him rely on him because his kingdom will triumph shortly now i do want to ask you this question in which kingdom to which kingdom do you belong now at this moment I know that many of you have professed your faith in Jesus Christ and it's your desire to purify yourself, to follow after him. But there are probably some who are present here today who have not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ. You haven't trusted in him. You're going on your own way. You're pursuing your own path. And you're satisfied with your life as it is. You say, I've heard this message many times, it's not yet for me. Well, I want to ask you the question, how do you know that you have any moments beyond this moment that you're in now? What makes you think that if you hold off in believing the gospel of Christ that the Lord will continue to bring you to places where you can hear that gospel and believe it? Do you right now get that sense within you that the Spirit of God is talking to you and calling upon you and saying, now is the time, now is the day. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's what the whole Bible is about. That's what the Christian faith is about. That's what's proclaimed from this pulpit every Lord's Day. That's what's proclaimed from all of the pulpits and all the churches that are represented to us here today. It's easy for us to hear these things over and over again and become comfortable with them, become familiar with them. But I want to ask you, have you really, are you, are you beyond being comfortable and familiar with them? And have you placed your faith in Christ? We have a lot of teenagers and children with us today. You grow up in Christian homes. Your parents read the Bible to you and they pray with you. It's not just your parents' religion. It must be yours. And I urge you, because of what God has promised and because what, have been, what he has accomplished in Jesus Christ, to turn away from your sins, profess your faith in him, come to him. There's no reason to delay. It's the best thing you could ever do is find forgiveness for your sins, to find cleansing, to be granted the gift of eternal life freely, to know that it's, it doesn't depend on your works It doesn't come to you because of your parents. It's not because of your church membership or an outward act like baptism. It comes because you trust in Jesus Christ. That's what the first announcement of the gospel is about. That's what the whole Bible is about. Remember those two disciples on the road to Emmaus? They were struggling with the events that took place. Jesus had to tell them, had to explain to them what these events were. And they believe and you know they appear in that upper room scene a little bit later on they come in to meet with the Apostles and they tell them what happened and then Jesus appears in their midst they came to faith I want you to come to faith I want you to trust in him young people older people whoever you are male female come to Jesus Christ and find forgiveness of sins in him listen once more to these words at the beginning of the Bible. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, the bruising has been done. The crushing has been done because Jesus Christ took to himself our nature and died in our place. He satisfied the wrath of God against us. When you read Genesis three, you need to read it as the beginning of the revelation of our redemption. And we can say thanks be to God for the seed who crushes the enemy under his feet and who grants us life as we put our faith in him. Amen. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we thank you for the gospel that was purposed from the beginning that was progressively revealed throughout the Old Testament and finally came to reality in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his virgin birth, for his life of holy obedience, for his willingness to endure shame and suffering and to go to the cross, there to drink to the dregs the cup of the wrath of God so that we might be forgiven. Thank you for his resurrection, for his ascension into heaven. Thank you that he sits now at your right hand, ruling and reigning and making his enemies a footstool for his feet. We pray that all who are present here will no longer be enemies, but will be his beloved elect who will be brought to you by faith, by the power of the Spirit. So would you bless your word? Would you give life even on this day? And glorify yourself as some are no longer the children of the devil, but by faith become the children of God. Hear us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.